0: Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Weisman. Today we survey some of the political scene nationally and internationally. Beginning with Tom Ferguson, professor emeritus at UMass Boston, who looks at the role of money in politics. We'll talk to him about some surprising results from the 2016 election, Trump's policies today, and especially the Democratic Party's recent election defeats, their ties to finance, and their apparently failing political strategies, which haven't led to an embrace of Sanders support in their base, but resistance to the kind of politics Sanders and much of their base represents. We then talked to Sebastian Budgen in Paris for an analysis of the recent parliamentary elections that gave Emmanuel Macron's new party and Marche a majority. We'll get Sebastian's understanding of what this means for both left and right in French politics and more. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Weisman and I'm happy to have Tom Ferguson with us today. He's a professor emeritus at UMass Boston and probably no one else in this country has contributed more to our understanding of money in politics than Tom Ferguson and he's analyzed almost all of the elections and followed the money In books like Right Turn, The Decline of Democrats and the Future of American Politics and Golden Rule, The Investment Theory of Party Competition and Logic of Money-Driven Political Systems, he's talking all the time about what the impact of money is in politics. Welcome to Jacobin Radio, Tom Ferguson.
1: Hi, thank you. I'm glad to be here, even (laughs) despite all of what we might call not the Friendliest political atmosphere in world history.
0: So let's just start there because I want to talk about, first of all, what's been going on since Trump won, but also with the Democrats who just lost four elections and, in addition, a thousand seats since uh, Obama came to power in 2008. So let's begin there.
1: I think the most sensible thing to do is we got to say that, like, the most turbulent, I think, stretch of time between an election and the month of June in world history. It's close to that outside of maybe a wartime. Nobody's ever seen anything like what we saw from Trump taking over to, I mean, it's like they cut directly from the Star-Spangled Banner to... Ride of the Valkyries or something. And it was like every day there was something new. I mean, it's been a long time. I usually wake up in the morning and I read a bunch of world newspapers around. It's been a long time since I could not wait to get to the American papers to see what was going to happen.
0: Can I just uh, interject? I tell people I'm suffering from PTSD, President Trump's stress disorder.
1: Well, there's that. But, you know, you could just as well have a Congressman Ryan disorder. Oh, God, yes. Uh, you could have any number of little small world crises and things, some of which Trump has exacerbated. My point is this, is that this is a reality that is in huge flux. Now, my colleagues, G Chen and Paul Jorgensen and I have, in fact, been looking at the 2016 election. And we have done some preliminary numbers and it's not the sort of thing we'd write up exactly as this quite yet but we can see very plainly several stages in the consolidation of trump one thing i should say that we find very straightforwardly is you can forget these stories about how trump didn't spend money to win i mean or somebody on his behalf didn't Mm. spend money to win what we've got about 1.1 billion in spending for trump and 1.4 for Hillary Clinton, which is, I mean, these are same orders of magnitude. I mean, stories about how... See, more uh, for
0: Trump, more for Trump than Hillary.
1: Less, less, 1.1 oh, less. No, 1. 1 versus 1. Oh, one. 1.4. But okay. mm-hmm. forgive me, we're back to the days, almost of the old Everett Dirksen. How, that, what's that kind of money between friends? That's not an enormous difference here. We're not looking at some kind of qualitatively unique outcome, which is the way a lot of people were analyzing Trump. Now, on the other hand, when you look at the early stages of the election, you can see that Trump is really running against the whole party. Mm. with a couple of conspicuous exceptions of which oil and chemicals and a disproportionate degree are in there from the beginning. Now, it's not hard to see what happened with the Paris climate agreements as uh, cause and effect in that stuff. But then when we sort of look through later, all kinds of people start coming in, including a large chunk of what you might call Republican establishment. What is maybe interesting or several things. One is the amount of defense spending that Trump attracts is very little.
0: Interesting. And that has
1: got to be in a Republican race. Without checking the facts, I'd be hesitant to say definitively, but it might be the lowest total of decades in terms of a, the percentage of the industry that's contributing. I mean, normally defense folks contribute heavily. They contribute heavily typically to both parties. But in Republicans, you know, when was the last time they didn't open their wallet in a colossal degree? But Trump's looking at very low numbers here. And in that respect, it's hard not to see right from the start. A lot of folks read this business with Russia, not as it has been portrayed in the paper since the election, but as he was talking about resetting to use a phrase hillary clinton once did on russia resetting the american relationship with russia there were clearly a lot of people who didn't like backing that that's a straightforward conclusion on the other hand you get a lot of machinery companies that are plainly looking for tariffs and in the later stages a lot of folks representing uh... In blunt english private equity mm. these people represent an entirely different approach to international trade many are very close to china and I've tried operating over there. Although a lot of them are also short in those markets. That's another discussion some other time. But so it's a real heterogeneous coalition, and it's also pretty clear that it broadened out a bit more in the inaugural. So we're looking at political coalitions that are very much in flux, that are not stable. These things are not going to persist. I think we're looking kind of transition regime here. Transition into something we don't know. The old Republican Party that looked like a closed corporation where all the candidates said the same thing. That was the thing that Trump blew apart. That's gone. It's not clear what's going to replace it. We haven't had time to look in detail at the differences between them and Paul Ryan, though it is clear that the role of the Cox and other people in Ryan is, looms much larger.
0: And with Pence, uh, too. I want to spend the bulk of the time on what the Democrats are doing in response or not right. doing, but let's just say it, because you and I talked about this at the time of the election. That essentially, there were four parties, because both parties were split between that's factions, right. and in fact maybe there's even more, as you say. But one thing that I think surprised a lot of Trump supporters is that he governed for those who were left behind. Rather, he ran, he campaigned for them, and in governing He's just allowed the far right it of the Republican Party. Could not be Party.
1: more comprehensive. I entirely agree. Could more. not be more comprehensive a turnaround.
0: And whether he'll get away with that, I don't know, but it's pretty stunning. With,
1: with one exception, and yeah. you got to pay some attention to this. He has taken pains repeatedly to dump on free trade.
2: Mm -hmm. And NAFTA,
1: though he hasn't actually done anything about NAFTA, but he did end, you know, the trans-Pacific, all talk of a trans-Pacific trade agreement, it's pretty obvious that the agreement with the Europeans that people were working on is never going to happen. I mean, he stopped that stuff. You can say plainly there'll be no more, I think, big multilateral accords. And that is something that has attracted him not only some industries, but Workers too. If you look closely, you can see the FLCIO is pretty badly split here, with some of the uh, unions, especially in construction, but also in some of the industries exposed to international trade, making friendly noises. And in that respect, they broke very early with the rest of the Democratic Party. The sort of Proclaimed rhetoric of resist mm. doesn't get a lot of attention, but it, it is absolutely a clear-cut fact. And something and it,
0: that we're going to look at after I speak with you with uh, Sebastian Budgeon in the French elections, because you're seeing some very interesting new realignments there too. But can I just steer you over to the Democrats? You're going there. Sure. You're yep. I'm all. Up.
1: Yes. There's nothing I'd rather talk <laughs> about than the
0: Democrats. Well, okay. Basis. I mean. What we're seeing I mean, is I, they're a party bent on on destruction. It looks like, and and doubling down on defeat. And you see Nancy Pelosi as as she answers the calls to get rid of her leadership. That in fact she says the level of attacks against her show how strong she is and effective she is. So given all of that, what do you think their strategy is? And maybe you could tell us why they lost these. Well, elections. I think
1: the issue is very simple. The Clinton and Obama supporters want to stop. People who think like Bernie Sanders at almost any cost. You could see that in the race for chair of the Democratic National Committee, for Mm -hmm. example. And it has shown up repeatedly in the decisions about which candidates to support in these congressional elections that they have uniformly lost. So that's the key issue. And beyond that is the question of what's behind that is the issue of what the party stands for. And to a considerable extent, the rhetoric about resist has been, I think, quite deliberately employed to stop people from asking, well, we know what we're against. We know we're against Trump, against attacks on immigrants, on race baiting, attacks on women. We we all know that. That's pretty plain. But what are we for?
0: Right.
1: particular the remarkable, stunning thing is in this discussion of health care, the way the Democratic leadership has run from single-payer. And single-payer is very plainly the answer to the economic problems posed by medical spending.
0: So, right. This is the groundswell. This is what people want. And what was remarkable, Tom Ferguson, in the Georgia race was the way Ossoff just didn't talk about Trump care or... Well, Ossoff
1: was clearly a candidate to the liking of the Democratic national leadership, which is why they were willing to pile so much money in. Mm. Those other races, they weren't necessarily uh, so favorably inclined. Mm. And, you know, these other races, several of them could possibly have been won with a bit more national effort. But like
0: in my home anybody, state of Montana with Rob Quist.
1: Yep, there was one. There was Kansas. Kansas. I'm sorry. Thank you. And Bernie Sanders was the only person, I think, who went out there a significant national stature to campaign. And the guy didn't get the support from the Democratic National Committee, and everybody was pretty bitter about it afterward, and they barely lost. And this is going to continue. It's not going away. The Democratic National leadership is in the hands of Wall Street insurers, a lot of folks in the medical industrial complex that don't want single payer. It's the traditional sort of, if you like, corporate side of the Democrats. The issue before us, I think, is just very straightforward. Either these folks are going to control the party or the population is going to control it. and. This is this, this is the is question it inside the Democratic Party anybody who tells you any other issue is just talking smoke quite deliberately
0: Well Tom Ferguson um, just just to go on that because now what we're seeing if anybody in the listening audience has a credit card they're getting notices from their credit card companies that they're changing fee structures and interest rate structures because you know the consumer protection agency yeah, it's is it's gutted and now you know not
1: gutted yet their proposals to gut it are legion and there you'll find i think some democrats notably elizabeth warren will stand up warren's also belatedly but look it's an amazingly gutsy thing to do no point in, she has now said look single-payer is clearly the way to go She's a little slow to jump on the telecom issues because of the efforts, the way the Trump administration has handed the FCC over to issues on network neutrality. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, this is actually an important issue that Democrats need to get on because the people who really get hammered on these efforts to wipe out network neutrality, in other words, treating everybody as an equal sort of source to get on the Internet, no two-speed Internets, are rural America, because those folks get Trump really, supporters. They, they often have no competition whatever in their uh, districts. And this this is a really big deal. It's not a minor issue. The telecom, finance, medical stuff. and The Democrats, mainline Democrats have been wishy-washy, but generally better than the Republicans on network neutrality. They've been much wishier and washier on finance. Well, let's
0: go to to Dodd-Frank, I think, goes into your first thing about Trump, and he uh, was opposed to the TPP and trade, and he also said that he was in favor of restoring Glass-Steagall, but that's not what the reform... That's not where they're going. So maybe you could just say a little bit, because also with respect, not the Republicans, but the Democrats, what is their position on Dodd-Frank, and in particular the Volcker rule? Mm.
1: I think they're trying to figure out what they think. Elizabeth Warren has been quite vocal. The party itself hasn't had that much to say. Let me, if I could, back up. Mm to This is a very tricky issue to judge. That is to say, the strength of the various factions in the Democratic Party, because the issue is this. I think the Sanders campaign proved that you can actually raise enough money to be nationally competitive. If Sanders had started earlier, if he, like, declared running when Baltimore was burning and things like that, he might actually have won the nomination because it would have been easier to bridge the gap between him and you know, African-American voters. It took a long time for that to sort of happen. But what that means is the following that the national party apparatus is typically going to be in the hands of the big money folks. That's exactly what's happened in in the last few months. But once you get candidates named and people start to compete, then you'll see money and volunteers and stuff can matter. I, I don't actually think, though this conflict appears to be mostly dormant right now. You can see it if you look closely. It will come back to life in the 2018 races. Paying attention to how many subsidized Democrats there are is a really important question. The other thing that one wants to look at are all these new media companies that use the Internet. They Mm. often, when you study them, turn out to be owned by hedge funds and other operations that clearly have access to grind.
0: Can I just interrupt because here's an issue sure. that the Democrats have not come out against, getting rid of the special privilege for hedge fund managers, which is carried interest. That's and then right. on the other yep. hand, what you're saying is showing how the traditional forms of financing elections can be upended by very massive mobilization as we've seen with Sanders. So, But on the other hand, I guess on the third hand, the Sanders forces are caught between a rock and a hard place because they're inside the Democratic Party where the leadership hates them and opposes them, and they don't have a lot of choices. So maybe you can kind of speak about well, all Well, okay, issues.
1: I still think that the institutional barriers to third parties, which are erected by the two major parties, no doubt about this, and colluded on with big media in the sense that they simply will not cover third parties you know you're you're long past any doctrine of fairness and even when you had the fairness doctrine they just wouldn't cover they didn't cover anything except the major parties anyway that's probably not going to change so i actually think if you're asking me as a clinical i don't like it but if you're asking me for a clinical judgment probably the best route is still dumping out candidates in primaries in the Democratic Party, you can get on the ballot much more easily than if you try to get on as a third party. You'll spend all of your time and money just trying to get on. And in that sense, I fear that, at least for the foreseeable future, absent some court decision that would change things, which I don't see that happening. I think two things. I think it's clear from 2016 that enough money can be raised to get candidates going, at least in a fair number. Of cases, the other thing that I think is incredibly clear is that very large number of Americans now see that our form of american capitalism no longer works for most people it is very plainly producing enormous riches for small numbers of folks and that the chance for ordinary people to have careers to go to college to get just sort of basic fairness, to hold on to blue-collar jobs with unions that stuff is all rapidly withering and people see it i don't think you're going to be able to contain that very plausibly. I don't think you're going to be able to do, you know, Hillary Clinton did not win the election. Some statistical studies of that race have shown that the amount of time talking about policy, as distinct from candidates or something, was about the lowest in many years. <laughs> the Democratic line has been, we're not Republicans. That's not going to be good enough,
0: not at all. Uh,
1: I think. And, um, I think these folks are vulnerable. I'm not somebody that has been walking around telling you for 20 years. Things are going to get better, but I actually think these folks are beatable. I think the times are running against them.
0: Well, that's and what I wanted to end with because we are out of time, but in any case, it, it does pose a conundrum because, as you say, the leadership has their ties in the Democratic Party, have their ties to finance, and they hate the Sanders forces, and yet the American public doesn't like them and have shown that in every single election. Nope. So nope. let's just hear. You guys
1: are losers now, I think. Bernie Sanders jibed that they'd prefer a a first-class cabin on the Titanic. That's exactly right.
0: (laughs) Tom Ferguson, we totally run out of time, but I want to invite you back because there's so much more to say about this and looking at not just the Democratic Party's failed politics and strategy of the leadership in any case, but also the conundrum that's not being talked about so much within the Republican Party. So we do live in interesting times. And I want to thank you for being there and analyzing them. Thanks very much. Thanks okay. so bye much. Bye-bye. Tom, Tom Ferguson is Professor Emeritus at UMass Boston. I'm Susie Weisman. Don't go away. When we come back, we're going to talk to Sebastian Budgen from Paris. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, and I'm glad that we have Sebastian Budgen joining us today. He's an editor for Verso Books and a contributing editor for Jacobin Magazine. He serves on the editorial board of Historical Materialism and organizes their giant conferences worldwide. And he's joining us from Paris tonight with an analysis of the recent parliamentary elections that gave Emmanuel Macron's new party En Marche a majority. We're going to get Sebastian's understanding of what What this means for both left and populist right in French politics and much more. Sebastian, welcome back to Jacobin Radio. Hi, Susie. Very good to have you here. And maybe we should just start with the election results. This is a legislative or parliamentary election. And maybe you could talk about the turnout, how much Macron won, and what happened to the other parties.
2: Yeah. Well, the first thing to note is that the turnout was very, very poor in the second round, which happened last Sunday. Uh, it's a two-round uh, parliamentary election, with one week between the two rounds. In the second round, there was a 57% uh, abstention rate, so which is uh, pretty massive. In addition to that, there was also an extremely historically high level of blank or spoiled ballots, about 10%. So uh, over two-thirds of the electorate could be said to have uh, boycotted.
0: Can I just ask, because in some countries that would nullify the election, is there any rule in France about turnout and, uh, and election results? No
2: I, no, I don't think there is, to be honest, no. Okay, no, There is no uh, threshold. But, yeah, it's clearly a, um, an extremely high level of abstention or boycott. Nonetheless, the result was extremely favorable for Emmanuel Macron's formation uh, on March. There were some predictions that it would be the biggest majority ever in the Fifth Republic. In the end, it didn't turn out quite to be that big. It wasn't as big in 2002 or uh, back in 1993. Maybe we'll come back to 1993 because uh, that's an interesting date, being two years just before the big explosion of public sector worker strikes in 1995. But so this time around, uh, 340 of the seats were won by the Macron uh, En Marche Formation, which is an extremely new formation. It's only been around for a year or so or less. That's 340 seats out of 577. The traditional right of the spectrum, the Republicans, as they call themselves, got a reasonable uh, result given the circumstances. I mean, they'd had a very poor presidential election. But they are internally divided because Macron's uh, whole strategy has been to uh, adopt people from the so-called moderate right, as well as people from the Socialist Party. So within the Republican camp itself, there are people who want to work with Macron or even join the government at some level, and others who want to oppose him uh, in a much more combative manner. There was a disastrous result for the Socialist Party, probably the worst result that they've ever had. It's really the end of a cycle, I think, for the Socialist Party. As you know, the Socialist Party was refounded by François Mitterrand in 1971 at the epinay Congress itself. Refounded because the previous Socialist Party, the SFIO, was completely delegitimized and at the end of its uh, its natural lifespan. I think we can say that in 2017, the natural lifespan of the Socialist Party has reached its end. It's, uh, and it's a group that is itself, again, internally divided between those who uh, want to work so-called constructively with Macron and those who still maintain some kind of political autonomy from him. And it looks like, you know, this will have enormous consequences for the Socialist Party. Their General Secretary, uh, Jean-Christophe Comédelis, was beaten in the first round of the legislative elections and is going to resign. There are very few senior figures of they're probably going to have to even sell their headquarters. in the,
0: So you're saying uh, it could actually be the end of the Socialist Party as we know it? And, and is this also the case? Because most people on this side of the Atlantic will only know that there was a fight between Hollande and Hamon, and neither one in that. So does it mean that there's no prospects for either one because of El Marsh formation?
2: Yeah, I mean, Hollande is completely out of the game. Amon is still around. Uh, and there's still something that describes itself as the left of the Socialist Party. But it doesn't really have much of a horizon at the moment. The right of the party is clearly, you know, attracted very strongly to Macron, his formation. So I think one should never underestimate the Socialist Party's ability to bounce back from um, disaster. They've they've done it before. As I said, in 1993, it was a massive majority for the right and the Socialist Party was squeezed. They've had other electoral disasters, but this really probably is the worst since the foundation of the party in 1971 and I think we can fairly confidently say that this looks like the end for that organisation. Amazing. Yeah. The other results that are of significance are that the far right, the Front National one eight, only eight seats in the parliament. They were talking and hoping about being able to form a parliamentary group for which you need a, a minimum of 15. And uh, Marine Le Pen obviously got you know 30% or more in the second round. So they could have expected a much more significant result. But it's not a proportional representation system, the parliamentary elections. So their parliamentary representatives are, are very few in number and they can't form their own group. So that's likely to lead to more contradictions and arguments that already started since the presidential election within their ranks. Maybe we can come back to that. The other significant result is that uh, La France Insoumise, the uh, organization around Jean-Luc Mélenchon, had some pretty good results. Uh, They got 17 deputies in the parliament, uh, including some young comrades. So they're going to be able to create their own parliamentary group. Uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon won a very fine victory in uh, Marseille himself, and a number of his key lieutenants won uh, seats. The Seine-Saint-Denis, Banlieue area, traditionally uh, communist, or back in the day a communist uh, red base, uh, was, uh, you know, it was almost a clean su- sweep for, for la France insoumise. And the Communist Party itself, despite getting a very low national percentage in the single figures,
0: This is really good. I'm glad you laid it out. The view, let's say, elsewhere and maybe even pushed in the press is that Macron got the kind of majority that will allow him to achieve, you know, his program. And that program, of course, is on this side of the Atlantic. They're calling him center left. You have corrected that for our listeners at least several times. But maybe you could say now just what kind of program he, he is going to try to implement. Will it be very similar to what the socialists were doing and conservatives or something different?
2: Yeah, well, we we still have to wait to see the outlines of what the next uh, few months will bring. But what we do know is that what he's put at the very center and front of his program and something he wants to try and push through in the next few weeks and months uh, immediately is another reform to the labor law. Uh, As you remember, this created enormous protest back in last spring when the Socialists pushed through their reform of the labor law, which he was obviously behind uh, as well. Now they want to continue the dismantling of the labour law regulations in a clearly neoliberal direction. I mean, they call it flexi-security, but I think it's fairly clear we're talking about flexibility, not security here. And a number of the things that they want to push through are things that the uh, big business and the employees have been pushing for for many, many years now. So it's it's clearly a very Neoliberal uh, government. The other aspect that is perhaps more surprising, at least for those who expected that Macron would be um, politically more sensitive to issues of rights and so on, is that uh, it looks like there is some plan to try and inscribe the law, of the state of emergency, into the uh, common law, so to in effect make permanent a whole number of features of the state of emergency, and therefore obviously be a massive curtailing of, of civil liberties. Uh, and as you some of you may have read in the press, uh, Amnesty International recently uh, issued a report condemning France for using its state of emergency, uh, not for anti-terrorist measures, but for repressing demonstrations and forms of dissent from the radical left uh, and from the ecologist movement. So it seems that uh, both the securitarian and the neoliberal aspect are going to be very much to the, to the fore.
0: Well, so you uh, have
2: questions such as foreign policy, we'll have to see.
0: Okay, so just to go, just to recap, so you have essentially the program of the Employers Federation being put into practice without saying so, and that you've just pointed out to the neoliberal character, but also emphasize that it's also authoritarian and very much a kind of security state sort of program. So given all of that, and it's really awful, and of course, it's never stated openly, What do you think is going to happen in terms of resisting that? We've seen tremendous resistance over the last period, even when, you know, people had written off the left. So does that mean that the left now will be fighting Macron more on the streets and in the factories and in the schools than, say, in the parliament? Or is it going to be a combination? I know this is hard to predict, but given what you know.
2: Yes, well, some insiders of the Macron administration were concerned about there being too big a landslide for the government on the grounds that if there wasn't some way of channeling dissent through the National Assembly, they said this may take expression on the street. And this is clearly something that they're very concerned about. In fact, Macron is planning to push through. Uh, after this supposed phase of uh, discussion and dialogue with the unions and employers, he is planning to push through the changes in labour law via a series of ordonnances, which are somewhat like decrees. So, not going through the usual process of um, of debate and uh, amendment and so on through the parliament. He claims it's simply uh, because they have to move quickly and so on and so forth. But I think it's very obvious to everybody that he wants to try and do this to. Avoid protests by the unions and he wants to do do, during the summer period, which is obviously the period that is most difficult to mobilize people against him. So it is something that they're very worried about uh, and they've factored in. On the other hand, they have a number of advantages, as you say, a massive majority in the parliament with a, a party that is completely controlled by him, full of newly elected. There's a massive federation in the private sector, already was co- collaborating with the Hollande government over the previous reforms and has said that it wants to collaborate with Macron over these ones. Force ouvrière, the third biggest federation, uh, looks like it wants, you know, would like to be at, sitting at the table uh, in a comfortable and uh, cosy way with the government, which just leaves the CGT, which at the moment has not ramped up its rhetoric. So... We will have to see how things play out. Uh, Of course, the French labor movement does have enormous reserves of combativity, but they don't exist in the abstract. They have to take some uh, organized forms. And uh, he very cleverly has chosen a conjuncture where it's very, as I say, very difficult to mobilize lots of people on the streets. So... What I think is true is that in the medium term, the delegitimation of the parliamentary process through the fact that he has this massive majority based on an extremely low turnout and so on will, I think, lead to a further radicalization of sectors of youth and of the labour movement. Whether those two strata can connect together and create a movement on the same kind of scale or bigger than last spring is obviously something that we're hoping for, but nothing be guaranteed
0: about Well, Sebastian, just on that, because in these last Nuit Debut and afterwards and all the protests against the labor law, we saw trade unions and youth coming together, as you've just said. And then in the election, the working class seemed to be split somewhat, and some of them supporting Le Pen because she ran on a sort of defense of the native working class. And that was popular in a period when the socialists had abandoned them. So, Is there any chance in the parliament that politics that the National Front ran on will continue and that that will still have some appeal? Or is this now completely up to the left, even though it had a weaker electoral turnout than perhaps hoped for? Maybe you could just give some comment about the kind of alliances that may be sought after in the next period.
2: Sure. Well, that's going to be a very interesting question. We're going to have to watch very closely. I mean, the Front National still remains the biggest party of working class voters blue collar working class voters uh, after these legislative elections, I mean it has to be noted and remembered and re- and repeated that obviously the level of abstention is the highest amongst the very uh, this category uh, that we 're talking about, so we're not talking about uh, a majority of uh, working class people on the electoral roll we 're talking about those who actually turn out to vote uh, but yeah, it still retains an extremely strong uh, popular base and has confirmed that particularly in the north of France, where Marine Le Pen was elected uh, in the constituency that she stood on with a very big majority. However, what has been developing since the presidential election is an internal crisis within the Four Nationales we were predicting. Namely, a section of the Four Nationales was very critical of the welfare statist position of Marine Le Pen and her advisers, particularly of the program to pull out of the Euro and out of the European Union in the medium term. That sector, which was uh, expressed by her niece, Marion Maréchal Le Pen, who has apparently resigned or, or resigned from political life, but none of us really believe that this is true has sharpened its critique of this position and basically said, you know, we, we didn't gain anything by taking this so-called left-wing position. We didn't win over yeah. any Mélenchon voters in the second round of the presidential elections. The key thing for us is to break apart the right, the, the Republican Party, and the way we're going to do that is not by frightening uh, potential right-wing voters with this quote-unquote socialist talk and this talk of leaving the euro. So the knives are sharpening within... The Front National. Marine Le Pen is coming under unprecedented criticism from within the ranks of the party. Uh, Her key advisor, Florian Philippot, has said he will resign himself from the Front National if the anti Euro line is abandoned. He's created his own faction or organization called the Patriots. In the run up to their Congress, I think we can see a lot of tensions beginning to develop within the formation now.
0: We have just a few seconds left, and I wondered, just on the last question, Sebastian, if this is really now, given what you said about the weakness and perhaps disappearance of the Socialist Party, as as is known, that gives tremendous opportunity for the far left to come together and develop independent political strength?
2: Yeah, absolutely. If the the radical left and the far left can uh, unite over particular concrete kinds of resistance and then perhaps be able to develop some quote-unquote transitional demands that they could agitate for together. We could be talking about a very hopeful situation opening up. Of course, all of us are well aware that the left is more than capable of screwing up just about every chance it's given. So, again, there's no guarantee that that will happen.
0: Okay. I want to thank you so much, as always, Sebastian Budgeon, for a very comprehensive analysis of what's going on, and we look forward to talking to you again as this situation unfolds. I've been speaking with Sebastian Budget. He's an editor for Verso Books and a contributing editor for Jacobin and also on the editorial board of Historical Materialism. And again, as always, he stayed up late in France to give us this analysis of the recent parliamentary elections. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Vaskar Sumkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.